Okay, good morning, good morning, and a good Erev Shabbos. It is Friday, we are preparing for Shabbos. Welcome everyone, good morning, good morning Charlene, hello Polina, hello Marshall, hello Mark, hello Lisa, hello Gila, hello Sharon, hello Leah, hello Alex, hello Carrie, and hello iPhone number five, and hello to my mother who's also joining us from the, uh, from she's preparing for Shabbos. Okay, so welcome, Mommy. <laughs> and uh, good morning, everyone. It is a very special Shabbos to th- this week, the Torah portion. We learn about the very beginning of the Jewish people, about Abraham, about the beautiful promises that God gave us. It was given to Abraham and to our forefathers. Let me just close this over here. And I, I, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity this week to also focus on what is happening right now. That the Jewish people, uh, this is a very unique time. Of, we're going through a difficult time. It's a time of, uh, of strength, right? Every difficulty also means that it's a time of strength. Um, what's happening in Israel, the rise in anti-Semitism. And there's a Hasidic line that one must live with the Torah portion of the week. It's not enough that the Torah portion is some abstract book off the shelf that we learn from. This is life. We're learning from this. We are applying the Torah to live right now on Friday, October 27th, 2023. So I always want to try to connect it as much as possible to even something which is relevant. And we're living in times which are very difficult. They're very scary on multiple levels. And I want to talk about that, what's happening in Israel. And I want to talk about something which is a little bit unconventional. We usually talk about like what's happening in Israel about, okay, you know, so how does Israel need to respond? How do we respond to the naysayers? A lot of it's about like what's happening in the world around us. I want to focus today about ourselves. Let's check in on ourselves. How are we doing? This class can be all about, as it's titled, what should we be thinking about Israel? Not about, you know, what Israel should be doing or what's happening there or what government policies should there be, what defense policies should there be, what did happen, what shouldn't happen, how do we explain to people what happened, how do we make people be more supportive of us, this is going to be all about internal, how do we process this. And I want to begin, before we jump in, on two introductory notes. This week's Torah portion is about Abraham, the parish of Lech Lecha, and there's, there are certain themes that are repeated so often to every single one of our forefathers. Number one, the very, very first promise that God gives to Abraham. The very first, the very first sentence that God says to Abraham is sending Abraham to Israel and promising Abraham that this is your eternal homeland for your people. Number two is the promise of the Jewish people. The Jewish people will never disappear. And the endurance of the Jewish people. These are the themes again and again and again. It is actually in today's Torah portion, in the sixth reading of the Parsha of Lech Lecha, the sixth reading corresponds to Friday, where Abraham expresses fear. Abraham expresses fear. The Jewish people are vulnerable. And God's promising here that the Jewish people are going to stay forever, but Abraham knows that there's going to be difficult times for the Jewish people. Abraham knows we're going to be facing anti-Semitism and the persecutions. And God reaffirms, and God tells Abraham words that he repeated again and again to every single one of our forefathers. Do not fear. Do not fear. Again and again. To Abraham, Al-Tira, don't fear. To Jacob, Al-Tira. To Isaac, to the 12 tribes. Do not fear. And that's in a certain way becomes a mantra of the very founding of our people, of our forefathers. Do not fear. We have God's blessings, we have God's promises, and we cannot fear. And I want to focus on that. That's number one. 
Let's keep that in mind. That's this week's Torah portion. That's actually today's Torah portion, the sixth reading, the Friday reading of this week's Torah portion. Do not fear Abraham. Point number two. 50 years ago, exactly 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War broke out on Yom Kippur. We don't need to go through the whole history. It was a very scary first few days of the war. Israel was facing total annihilation. The scariest day of the war was the third day of the war. The vulnerability, the, uh, the unpreparedness of the, of the Israeli army and the absolute power of our enemies was becoming very apparent. Uh, the, Israeli, um, the Israeli planes were just, being, were just being shot out of the sky right and left. It was very scary. In the cabinet, in the military cabinet, Moshe Dayan was, they were, they were talking about already arming every single Israeli civilian with a gun. It's like that, it should be, you know, just every civilian for their own life. Just, just try to survive the inevitable onslaught. Prime Minister Golda Meir was even considering the nuclear, the nuclear uh, uh, option. It was horrible. I want to read it with you by the end of the class, but on that very day, the third day of the war, it was right. It was the day before Sukkot, the eve before Sukkot, and the Rebbe spoke about this. There's a war, and it's frightening times, but a Jew cannot be stuck in fear, and there even needs to be joy. Meaning, it's scary, but we're not paralyzed, and we're not. We're not. We're not fearful. It's a scary situation, but we're not scared. We're not fearful. And I want to talk about that. The power of thinking good, of speaking good, and of not fearing, and the power of, of that within Judaism and specifically in this situation. So let us begin with a story, which becomes a foundational text for this, for this teaching. There's a Hasidic saying. The Rebbe said it thousands of times. Think good. And it will be good. Have you ever heard that line before? Think good and it will be good. Which sounds nice. Is it real? <laughs> think and it will be good. I'm saying, if I think something, does that change reality? Many people wouldn't consider themselves a pessimist. But I'm a realist. So I just think good, but it's not good. What do you want me to do? <laughs> like, you know the joke? What's the difference between an optimist and a realist? What's the difference between someone who is an optimist and a pessimist? The pessimist says, it's so bad it can't get any worse. You know what the optimist says? The optimist says, oh yes it could. Okay, <laughs> that's a very cynical joke. Yes, Marshall, go ahead. The way I heard it is the difference is the pessimist has more experience. Okay, there you go. So the realist says, I have experience. You're naive. You want to think good, it will be good, but uh, that's not reality. And by the way, dear friends, this may be a drop of a longer class. Maybe we'll be, clo we'll be finishing closer to 12. So let us read. Source 1 in, our, in the handouts, page 3. The story goes like this. This is uh, from, a, from a talk from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who was the father-in-law of, uh, of the more recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. It says like this. In the Tomchei Temimim Yeshiva, there was a mashpia, a Hasidic mentor, named Rabbi Michael. The older Hasidim remember who he was. As a young man, one of his children fell very ill, God forbid. The doctors gave up, saying that there was nothing to be done. Rabbi Michal informed his fellow Hasidim of the situation. They encouraged him and strengthened his spirits. God would certainly have mercy. But he must go to Lubavitch immediately. All of his friends say it will be good, but run to the Rebbe and try to get a blessing from the Rebbe that your son should have recovery. But Rabbi Michal cried bitterly. He really wanted to go to the Rebbe. But the doctor said that there was only hours left. What point was there in going? His kid is dying. If you him to start traveling, it will take a few days to go, a few days to come back. His kid's breathing his last breaths. So one of the elder Hasidim thundered at him. The Talmud says one must never give up hope for God's mercy. 
the interceding angels will certainly persuade God to hold the decision for after you return from the Rebbe. So the Chassidim encourage him. They say, a Jew is not allowed to give up. Go, don't worry. One of his peers, a tailor, joined Rabbi Mikhail on the journey to Lubavitch, to the town of Lubavitch, which is in Russia, white Russia. On the way, they found some cheap rides so they didn't have to walk the entire way on foot. Arriving in Lubavitch, Rabbi Mikhail managed to get an immediate appointment with the Rebbe. When I went into the Rebbe, Rabbi Mikhail recalled, I gave him my prayer note for my child, and a thought crossed my mind at that moment. Who knows what is happening with my son? The doctors gave him just hours, and I burst into tears. It's an emotional story. There's a father, he's already, he left home for a few days. He doesn't even know, is my son dead? Did they already bury him? He doesn't know, he's crying. Page four. The rabbi read the note and told me, don't cry. Think good and it will be good. Don't wail. You will be at the bar mitzvahs of your grandchildren. That's a beautiful thing. He doesn't know if his kid's alive. And the rabbi says, don't cry, your child's alive. He's going to get married, he's going to have children. You'll be there by those, by your grandchildren's. The English translation here says that you will be by the bar mitzvah of your grandchildren. From the Hebrew, it seems that the rabbi was saying that about his son. Your son will live long enough to be at his own grandchildren, your great-grandchildren's bar mitzvahs. So I think this is a mistranslation. Okay, in any case, the story concludes, whenever things got difficult, said Rabbi Mechoel, and he did not have an easy time with his children. I would picture the rabbi saying this to me at that meeting. And my heart would feel better. So this is one of the sources in Hasidic tradition. There's a teaching from the Rebbe. It comes from the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe. He lived in the early 1800s. Think good and it will be good. A Jew needs to think positive. And then it will be good. So I'm going to learn with you now a talk that the Rebbe spoke once. This is actually from the year 19... 66. And the Rebbe analyzed and discussed this saying, think good and it will be good. So let's read what the Rebbe says, middle of page four. My father-in-law would, respect, would, would respond to many questions with the saying of the Tzemach Tzedek, think good and it will be good. There are people that are always interested in finding the sources for every statement, including this one. In fact, this saying has a clear source in the Zohar, which teaches that, a joy, that the joy a person expresses down below is reflected back to them from above. So Rebbe says the source of this saying, think good and it will be good, actually comes from the Zohar, our mystical Kabbalistic tradition. Let's read that Zohar, and if you joined our How Happiness Thinks course this past summer, you will recognize this Zohar. Beautiful piece of Zohar. Let's read. Source number two, bottom page four. Heaven reflects back to earth its own state. When we display joy down here, heaven reflects joy back to us. When we are sad, heaven responds in kind. So there I've been saying, we see here from the Zohar, this is not just, you know, feel good. You know, this is not just, okay, you know, you'll probably be in a better space if you're more positive. Positivity actually helps. When you are happy, you're creating positive energy in your life because God mirrors whatever you show it, whatever you show God. You're happy, you bring divine joy and happiness into your life and blessings. When you're sad and depressed and, and all tzikvetched, all stressed and tension, you're bringing more of that tension from above into your life, which is obviously the opposite of a force of blessing. And this becomes something that was always one of the big pieces of advice that the Rebbe would give people when they were dealing with a difficult situation, especially a situation which was out of their control. You have to start thinking good. Stop thinking pessimistically. Stop having this negative look at everything. Don't have this negative bias. You have to have a positive bias. 
And, you know, one of the things that people say is, well, what could I do? If I feel stressed about something, I feel stressed. <laughs> what do you want me to do? If I, feel, if I feel pain, if I feel fear, what do you want me to do about it? So I want to read this next verse with you, which is from the same Rebbe who coined this phrase, think good and it will be good. There was a chassid. We actually, we learned this letter also in previous classes. There was a chassid who was going through a very difficult situation. It was a health situation. And he was very depressed from it. And he wrote to the Rebbe then, which is called the Tzemach Tzedek. He was named after his, the main work, one of his uh, series of books that he authored, which was called Tzemach Tzedek. His name was Rabbi Menachem Mendel Shnerson of Lubavitch, the great, great grandfather of the Rebbe. And this is what the Tzemach Tzedek answered to this chassid who was going through a very difficult time about how to remain positive. And he tells him, it is not right that you are being so negative. It is wrong for you to be this way. And you could control it. Don't say you can't control. So let's read together. Source 3. Source 3 comes from the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the grandchild of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. So he says like this. He first hears a story. This on page 5. I heard from the mouth of my saintly grandfather in Piena. This is what the Magid would say on the verse, on the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a man above it. What we show down below is reflected above. Let me give some background here. The Tzemach Tzedek was a young man. He was accompanying his grandfather. This was during the war between France and Russia with Napoleon. The Alta Rebbe, this is a larger history, we won't go into it now. The Alta Rebbe personally was praying that Russia should win and that Napoleon should lose, which is indeed what happened. Napoleon heard that there's a great rabbi who is against him and who is supporting the Russians. And he said, I want that man dead. And Napoleon came into Russia and uh, started going for the Alta Rebbe. He heard where the Alta Rebbe lives, and that was one of his... He wanted to invade that town, and he wanted to personally kill the Alta Rebbe. The Alta Rebbe ran for his life. He heard about it. And the Alta Rebbe was already very old then. And they reached this town of Piena. It was deep in the Russian winter. And the Alta Rebbe was clearly in his last moments. This was the last night of the Alta Rebbe's life. So you can only imagine a grandchild... By the way, the Tzemach Tzedek's mother died when he was three, and the Alter Rebbe personally raised him. So this was not just his grandfather, it was his father figure, it was his mentor, it was his teacher, it was everything. And it was, so he was in a bad mood. So the Alter Rebbe tells him, he's literally on his deathbed, the Alter Rebbe says, no, my teacher told me there's a verse on the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a man above it. That whatever we show down below is reflected above. The same idea from the Zohar. The way we are, that is how God reflects himself back to us. Let's continue reading. Therefore, he enjoined me not to sing a sad tune. He was in a bad mood. He was in a sad mood. The grandchild, the Tzemach Sadek. He was singing a bad tune. His grandfather says, no, don't sing a sad tune. This occurred while I was praying the evening prayer on the night before he passed away. I was praying with a sad tune and he waited for me to finish and then told this to me. Very powerful. Don't bring negativity. The author was saying, why are you bringing negativity into this room? Why are you being sad and melancholic? Be happy. We need divine joy in this room. <laughs> That's our tall order. The author is about to pass away. He's going to pass away in a few hours. He says, I don't need to live here in my last few hours with all this negativity here. We need joy here. And the way we act down here in this room, that is how God brings His energy and His divine presence as well. So let's continue. So the, so the Semach Sadek now brings it down practically. He says, There are fears that people cause themselves. Fears that they have the choice and ability to prevent. 
says, says you could you could change your fears. You don't have to buy into those fears. This is evident from the fact that we are commanded not to have fear during war. As the verse says, let your heart not be afraid. One of the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. There are only 613 commandments. One of them is that a Jewish soldier is not allowed to be scared. It's a, it's a violation of... You're not allowed to eat pork. You're not allowed to be scared when going to war. What's the obvious question? How could you command something to not have fear? Fear is a, is a, is a, is a result, is a, is, a, is, is, a, is a stimuli. When there's something to be feared of, you have fear. So, but the Torah tells us you're not allowed to have fear. How could that be? So let's continue reading. The Tzemach Tzedek writes, this seems inconceivable. What if people are still afraid as they witness the scenes of war? Right, God forbid, we should never have to see it, but we all know, you see war, it's very scary. So what should somebody do? A soldier sees war. A soldier is facing, facing death. He shouldn't be scared. The Tzemach Tzedek continues, it is known that all commandments can only be regarding things that we have the ability to choose or to reject. So the Tzemach Tzedek continues and says, yes, we could control our fears by choosing what we think about. And thought is something we have full control over. Let's continue reading. We're on page 6. Don't think or speak of fear. Says the Tzemach Tzedek. There are three garments, meaning the behaviors of the human soul. Thought, speech, and action. These are our primary behaviors, and we have free choice to think, speak, and act as we wish. Even if the heart is afraid, one can draw their thoughts, speech, and action away from that and not dwell on it altogether, but rather on uplifting matters. This is the commandment of let your heart not fear, not to dwell on the fear. A person who induces fear is in violation of a negative commandment. If one ignores it, the fear in their hearts will dissipate. At the very least, it will immediately become dormant, and over time, it will completely dissipate and not return. So, so the author of it, so the Semach Sadek says like this We can't directly change our feelings, but feelings come from the things that we dwell upon when we think about it, when we obsess over it, when we talk about it, we are creating that emotion. We are adding fuel to the fire. If we stop, if we actively stop thinking about it, don't let your heart, don't let your mind ponder and wallow in this fear. It will slowly go away. Or at least it will we'll just slip into your subconscious. It won't be something that is actively hijacking your life. So, the Tzemach Sada continues. Again, practically, what do we do? Think about happy matters. The primary method of distracting the mind from fear is to redirect it to other matters. These can be mundane happy matters, as well as Torah study, which gladdens the heart. By studying Torah every day, especially with a study partner, studying the areas of practical Jewish law, such as the laws of the morning blessings, Shema, prayer, etc., as well as the esoteric parts of Torah. So first of all, think about anything that just makes you happy. Think about anything that relaxes you. Number two, Torah brings joy into our life. Get a friend, learn Torah together. He says Jewish law, study Hasidus, the deeper parts of Torah. Let's continue. You should certainly not discuss depressing matters. Act as if you are happy completely happy. And even if you do not feel it now, you will ultimately become happier. This is because the heart follows a person's actions and deeds. As Maimonides writes, he should repeatedly perform the acts which conform to the standards of the golden mean. He should do this constantly until these acts are easy for him and do not present any difficulty. Then the character traits will become a permanent part of his personality. Here we have the idea. Do not be scared. Do not fear. Especially in times of war. And we need to think good. And that is a real thing. Think good and it will be good because when we think good, 
we are bringing that goodness down also from above. Let's 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 add a, let's go even deeper into this. How are we doing so far? We're doing good. Let's go even deeper. We'll go even deeper into the power of thought with this next idea over here. Page seven, the biblical source. Let's go back to the Rebbe now. The Rebbe continues. While the esoteric Zohar isn't the legal authority, there is an additional source for this approach in the revealed dimension of Torah. So Kabbalah is Kabbalah. That's the esoteric teachings, the Zohar. But the Rebbe says we even have this idea that bad thought could bring bad and good thoughts can bring good. We have it straight in the Torah. In source four, we have a few verses from Exodus. Very interesting story. This is when Moses was a young man, before he was Moses the leader. He was just Moses. The story of Moses is, of course we know, he was actually, Moses was brought up, not by his own mother, but by Pharaoh's daughter, Batya. Batya finds baby Moses as a baby. He was thrown into the Nile in a special basket to save him. Batya finds him, raises him. And Moses grows up as an adult in Pharaoh's palace. And the Torah tells us about how when Moses grew up, he started venturing outside of the palace and he started seeing what's happening to the Jewish people, to the suffering and the plight of his brothers and sisters. Very interesting story over here. Let's read. Source 4, page 7. It came to pass in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brothers and observed their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brothers. What does he see? Probably a pretty typical sight. The Egyptian slave master is whipping a Jew. What happens? Moses turned this way and that, and he saw that there was no one watching. So he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. What's Moses' first act that he does? He protects a Jewish life. Here is an Egyptian hitting a Jew. Moses literally kills him and buries him, hoping that no one sees. Okay, let's read a Rashi here. This is not so important for the class, but it's interesting. Rashi gives us the historical background to the story. Let's keep on reading. Rashi, striking a Hebrew man, hitting and whipping him. The victim was the husband of Shlomit Bat Divri, whom the Egyptian had laid his eyes on. At night, the Egyptian summoned Shlomit's husband from his house and entered and lay with his wife, who thought it was her husband. The husband came back and realized what happened. After the Egyptian realized that he had been exposed, he whipped and beat the husband all day. All right, so it's a horrible story. Here's the Egyptian that goes and rapes a Jewish woman and then goes and torments and beats up the husband the whole day. So this was not regular beating. Moses saw that this Egyptian was, was just destroying this man. So Moses went and killed him. But the drama continues. Let's read. Moses went out on the second day. The next day he goes out again. And behold, two Hebrew men, two Jews, were quarreling. He said to the wicked one, why are you going to strike your friend? He saw two Jews fighting. He saw one's about to hit his friend. Why are you hitting your friend? So he retorted So that Jew answered back to Moses with chutzpah. He says, Who made you a man, a prince, and a judge over us? Do you plan to slay me like you slayed the Egyptian? Moses became afraid and said, Indeed, the matter has become known. Moses gets scared. He thought no one witnessed how he murdered, how he killed that Egyptian. But here he sees, Oh, now he's scared. The matter has become known. He says it. And what happens? Page 8. Pharaoh heard of this incident. And he sought to slay Moses. He hears that there's some guy, Moses, who's going killing Egyptians. <laughs> he wants to bring him in. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh. He stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by the well. Okay, so this is part of the drama of Moses' life. This is how Moses leaves Egypt temporarily. 
he runs away to Midian, to another land. And okay, the story continues. But let's just recap what happened over here. Moses kills an Egyptian. Why? Because he is bullying and, and, and just, just striking this Jew. Moses hopes nobody sees. Next day he finds out that people do know about it. Other Jews know about it. And he gets scared. And he even vocalizes his fear. He says, Oy vey, I'm in trouble. People know what I did. And then what happens? Pharaoh hears about it and Moses has to flee. I want you to remember that sequence because we're going to soon dissect it in a moment. Let's read the Rashi on this verse as well. It's here in the books on page 8. Rashi says, Moses became afraid. So Rashi says, as it's plain, meaning would indicate. Meaning, why was he afraid? So Rashi says, well, obviously he was afraid. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to know that he killed an Egyptian. Now, killing an Egyptian officer in Egypt is not really the best position to be in. So he was scared that people knew about it. Okay. Rashi continues, there's also a Midrashic interpretation that Moses saw such lowly people among the Jews that he feared they weren't worthy of redemption. He saw Jews who were willing, you know, who were, who were hitting each other and speaking this way. He felt maybe the Jews don't deserve to be saved from Egypt. Okay. So that's like a deeper interpretation of what does it mean that Moses became afraid. All right, next Rashi. Indeed, the matter has become known. Meaning Moses says, first he fears, and then he says, indeed the matter has become known. So Rashi says, as its plain meaning would indicate. Again, what was Moses scared of? Moses was scared that people heard about it and that it could get out, that it could get out to Pharaoh. So Rashi says, that's what it means. And Rashi adds a deeper interpretation. There's also a Midrashic interpretation. I now know what I have pondered over. What sin did the Jews do to be deserving of such treatment? Now I see they deserve it. The Rebbe is now going to dissect what Rashi writes here. I want to first analyze it with you outside before we read it inside. Rashi writes twice. Moses became afraid as its plain meaning would indicate. Moses says, indeed the matter has become known as its plain meaning would indicate. Let me ask you a question. Why does Rashi even have to say that? Is it not obvious? Meaning like this. Moses kills an Egyptian officer, and then he finds out that people know about it, so he gets scared. Is there a need for interpretation here? Is there a need for Rashi to tell you, oh, by the way, yeah, whatever you thought, that's what it means. Like, that's obvious. Rashi, in general, does not comment when something is plain and obvious. So by Rashi here having to say, it is what you think it is here, Rashi is somehow answering a question or trying to stop you from coming up with the wrong interpretation. So the question is, what could be misunderstood over here? What is Rashi trying to reinforce by saying it's the plain meaning? This is because there's a rule about Rashi. When Rashi writes something, it's with absolute precision you can hold rashi accountable for an extra letter he the, the saying goes rashi wrote with a pen of gold when you're writing with gold every single little stroke is a value so rashi asked the writer here moses became afraid and moses said indeed the matter has become known and has to say it is what it sounds like well, why are you saying that rashi And what the Rebbe is going to say is that there seems to be an extra verse here, which is not necessary in the Torah. Because the Torah also, the Torah does not add any extra information. The Torah is very concise. Moses slays, slays the Egyptian officer. The next day he finds out two Jews know about it. He gets scared. He verbalizes his fear. Next verse Pharaoh finds out, Moses has to leave. Moses runs for his life. Very simple question here. Why does the Torah need to add the verse that Moses became afraid? 
Why does the Torah need to tell us that Moses verbalized, indeed, the matter has become known? It's unnecessary to the story. The story should have been Moses did it. He finds out the two Jews know about it. Pharaoh finds out. He runs. The idea that he was scared is not really part of the story. Meaning, I don't care what he felt. Why does the Torah need to tell us how he felt? You know, last week's Torah portion. Did the Torah ever tell you how Noah felt during the whole story of the flood? Before the flood, in the middle of the flood, after the flood? There's no talk about what he felt like. Here, this is a whole verse in the Torah. Moses became afraid and he said, indeed, the matter has become known. It's irrelevant. All we need to know is that Pharaoh finds out and therefore Moses has to flee. Moses is scared that people know about it. And it's based like this. Let's say the whole world knows about it besides Pharaoh. Would Moses need to flee? No. <laughs> Let's say only Pharaoh knows about it, but no one else knows about it. Moses would still need to flee. So the idea that people know about it is not really part of the story. The idea that Moses is scared that people know about it is not part of the story. It's inconsequential. So, <laughs> we, so Rashi seems to be somehow answering that question. Why is the Torah telling us about Moses' fear? And then what is Rashi telling us by saying it is what it sounds like it is? That's where Rashi is commenting on this extra, extra verse. And the Rebbe is going to tie it in. The fear of Moses is an integral part of the story. And Rashi wants you to take note of that. And realize that this is of the essence of the story. That Moses was fearful and that is actually part of the narrative. That is one of the driving forces of the story. Every good storyline has to have the force that pushes the story forward. This verse is not a side verse. This is a main part of the story that moves the story along. Let's read. All right, now we're going to get a little bit analytical over here, okay? So follow along. The Rebbe says like, says like this. Middle of page 8. The Rebbe says, We need to understand why Rashi needs to comment as its plain meaning would indicate. The meaning seems self-understood, even to a beginner school child. Before killing the Egyptian... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Before killing the Egyptian officer the previous day, Moses had looked to both sides to confirm that no one was watching. After killing the Egyptian, he buried the body in the sand. So it's very clear that when he now realizes that everyone knows what he did, he is afraid and says, indeed, the matter has become known. So what is Rashi trying to explain here? Why does Rashi have to come and say, yeah, it is what you think it means, as his plain meaning would indicate? And again, Rashi doesn't do this usually. Rashi usually, if it's a self-understood verse, he's quiet. He pleads the fifth. No, there's no reason to comment. It's like, what's up with Rashi telling you it is what it sounds like it is? So the Rebbe says, oh, there's something much deeper here. Let's continue on page 9. The reason for Moses' fear. So the Rebbe says, Rashi here is addressing a different question. The commentators of the Torah understand that the reason why Moses fled Egypt was because Pharaoh had heard that he had, what he had done and wanted to kill him. Right, That's the reason. This raises the question of why the Torah tells us that Moses was afraid when he realized that word has gotten out. That wasn't what caused him to flee. As I said earlier, right? It's not part of the storyline what Moses felt, what Moses' emotions was. All that matters is practically, Pharaoh found out, Moses now has to run for his life. What does his emotions and his fears have to do with this? It's not part of the integral storyline. And the Rebbe continues, The reason why Moses fled was that he was afraid of Pharaoh, and he would have fled even if only Pharaoh had heard, and the matter had not become public knowledge. And if it was the reverse, that the matter had become public knowledge, but Pharaoh was unaware of it, Moses wouldn't have fled. His flight was only because of Pharaoh. This raises the question of why the Torah sees it necessary to relate to us that Moses was afraid when he learned that word had gotten out. It's a very, very analytical question, but it's a very interesting question. Which is, if you have to strip the, the, the story down to its essence, all that matters is that Pharaoh heard about it. Moses has to run because Pharaoh hears about it. The idea that it's public knowledge is inconsequential. 
The idea that Moses is afraid that it's public knowledge is inconsequential. The whole story could have still happened if Moses wasn't afraid. The whole story could have happened even if it wasn't public knowledge. So why does the Torah have to tell us this? And the rabbit tells, no, the fear is actually very integral. And the rabbit says like this, this is, this is crazy stuff here. This is, this is the big punchline here. Bottom of page 9. Says the rabbi, the answer must be that had Moses not been afraid, Pharaoh would never have found out. You hear this? You know why Pharaoh found out? Because Moses was afraid. And the rabbi quotes, think good and it will be good. Moses should have trusted that no Jew would report on him. Word wouldn't spread and Pharaoh wouldn't find out. The rabbi says like this. You know what Moses' mistake was? Moses' mistake was that in his mind, he was scared that another Jew would report him to Pharaoh. You know what Moses should have done? Moses should have been certain that no Jew would report him. And the rabbi says, it's not only a matter of what you think. His fear actualized that another Jew should report on him. Isn't that crazy? The idea that he even thought and even verbalized that another Jew will tell Pharaoh on him, that's what caused that Jew to do it. And this brings us to a much deeper understanding of the power of thoughts and words. You know, in our world, we tend to think, of course, if we, you know, if, if I throw a stone and it hits a window, that causes damage, right? That's, that's real damage. That's concrete. Here's a stone. That's a window. <laughs> Physics say that there's only a certain amount of pressure that a window could take before it shatters. Okay. But if I say something, is that real? Does that cause damage? And again, maybe the message within my words could cause damage. But the word itself, could a word cause damage? Not really. A word is not that real. And a thought, could a thought cause damage? It's just a thought, you know, big deal. I'm just thinking something. Is that causing damage? But Judaism comes and says no. From our perception, from the physical perception, it seems that only actions are of consequence. But spiritually speaking, words are real. Thoughts are real. They accomplish something. They do something. And just like when you do something, you've just changed the reality. You've made something. There's a consequence. There's a result. When you speak or think something, you actually bring that energy into the world. And it is a very real thing. And the idea here, the idea here is that when Moses thought that this Jew will snitch on him, that thought brought the energy into this world. And it caused the other Jew to do it. And when he spoke it, he actualized that possibility in this world. And that actually brought out that negativity within this Jew. And the Rebbe says that's why this idea that Moses was scared and verbalized his fear, is, is the Torah tells it to us. Because it's consequential to the story. That's what moves the story along. If not for his fear, the Jew wouldn't have done it. Moses' fear, and even verbalizing it, brought that into this world. It brought that possibility into this world. And I want to read that now with you on page 10 about the concept of speech. You know, in Hebrew it's called Lashon Hara, evil speech, gossip. And gossip is considered one of the worst sins for one Jew to gossip another Jew. So it's all based on this idea. Let's read page 10. Source 5, this is from the Talmud. The Talmud tells us in Israel, in the land of Israel, evil speech, meaning discussing the faults of others, when we gossip about another Jew, it was called triple speech, because evil speech kills three. It kills three. The one who shares it, the one who listens to it, and the subject of the speech. Every time there's gossip, there are three parties here. There's a person saying the gossip, there's a person listening to the gossip, and there's the person who the gossip is about. And it kills all three. Let's continue. Next text, which is also from the Rebbe. The Rebbe explains this piece of Talmud. The Rebbe asks a question. It is understood, this is source six, it is understood how evil speech harms the speaker 
and the listener because both participate in the sin. Right? The person who's saying gossip and the person listening, they're both actively sinning. So I understand why they're both in trouble. The Rebbe says, this is such a severe sin that the sages liken it to idolatry, adultery, and murder combined. That's heavy. Okay. However, why is the subject of their conversation blameworthy? He did not participate in the sin. Why should he suffer? If two people are speaking about gossip about me, I don't even know they're talking about me. I'm, I'm part of the problem? You know, I have nothing to do with them. That's their problem. Why am I considered one of the people who are killed as part of this process? So the Rebbe says, the explanation is that speech brings to the fore that which was concealed. Speech is real. Speech is an action. You are bringing something into this world. And the Rebbe says, continues, thus, when speaking ill of another Jew or another person, we bring their ill to the fore and can cause them harm as a result. If it wouldn't have been spoken about, it may have remained hidden and not have negative effects. You see, all of us have a lot of good inside, all of us have a lot of bad inside. We hope that our inner negativity stays buried somewhere deep inside of us and never comes out. When somebody else thinks bad about us or speaks bad about us, it brings the inner negativity that they're speaking about out into the front. And that is the harm that gossip does. This is a spiritual result. Just like if you do something, you throw a stone, that is real. That's a consequence, right? You'll, you'll have to, you know, whatever, you'll, you'll get sued for that, whatever. It's a real thing. You can't say, well, it wasn't real. Speech is real. You've just done something to that other person. That's real damage. So the Rebbe says, going back to the story of Moses, the Rebbe applies this concept. Bottom of page 10. The Rebbe says, the problem was compounded by the fact that Moses expressed his fear verbally and didn't just leave it to the realm of thought. Moses actively thought that these Jews are going to go and tattletale on him. And the Rebbe continues, page 11. Hayom Yom, which is a book from the Rebbe of Hasidic sayings. Hayom Yom, the book Hayom Yom, quotes a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov on this theme. The Talmud says that evil speech harms three people. The speaker, the listener, and the subject. It's clear why the speaker and listener should be harmed by this. They could have avoided being parties to the evil speech. But why should it have a negative effect on the subject? They, that person, didn't play any role in the evil speech. So the Rebbe continues, the Baal Shem Tov explains that when negative aspects of a person are discussed verbally, this brings them to the fore. It brings that negativity to the fore. And they can no longer be ignored. This is why evil speech affects the subject as well. Because their negative aspects have been revealed. Similarly, in our case with Moses, had Moses' fear remained in his mind, Pharaoh wouldn't have heard about his actions. But since Moses expressed his fear verbally, it eventually reached Pharaoh's ears. And this is what Rashi is teaching us with his comment as its plain meaning would indicate. Moses should have thought positively and it would have worked out positively, but he didn't do so and even expressed his fear verbally with the result that Pharaoh heard what had happened. It's a stunning idea. It's radical. The Rebbe says the thoughts of Moses brought the trouble. Just by thinking about it, he made it happen. And if we only think about it the opposite way. So we have this idea. Fear. Thinking about fear. Speaking about fear. Allowing fear to dominate our reality. You know, this is not a personal decision. It's not just, okay, you know, the, what we do is highly consequential. There are real results happening here. To conclude, let's bring it back to what the Rebbe said by the Yom Kippur War. It was the worst day of the war, the third day of the war. It was outright scary. What happened over here was very painful, but the fear of total annihilation that the Jewish people felt 50 years ago, you know, thank God we didn't have to feel that way with what's been happening over the past few weeks. It's the third day of the war. Everyone's freaking out. The Rebbe, every single year, the day before, the night before Sukkot, 
would hold a Hasidic gathering. And people were thinking, you know, would the Rebbe cancel it this year? You know, who's really in the mood of coming together and singing Hasidic songs and saying L'chaim? It's not really the right... We don't feel like having a Fabrengen right now. The Rebbe said it's on. We're not canceling. And you could, you could hear it on tape. The Rebbe spoke... Right away, the Rebbe addressed the issue. And the Rebbe says like this. Let's turn to page 14. Page 14. The Rebbe says like this. Hasidic Fabrengen during a war? We must first address the question. How can we be holding a Hasidic Fabrengen while Jews are at war? So the Rebbe says like this. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, one of the great Hasidic masters, writes that the Baal Shem Tov would constantly teach publicly that the verse, God is your shadow, means that God acts like our shadow, reflecting the moves that we make. The way we conduct ourselves dictates how God acts towards us. This is also taught in the Zohar. The way we present our face here is the way God presents himself to us from above. When we exhibit a joyful countenance, God shows us a joyful countenance from above. So the Zohar continues on theme in in further detail. It is therefore clear that the way we can be of help at this time is by exhibiting joy, as joy has the power to break through all boundaries. So there's war. What does the Rebbe tell us to do? This week's it's the message that God tells Abraham. Do not fear. Will the Jewish people face difficult times? Yes. And Abraham knew about that. God told him. But what's the message? Don't fear. Not only because it's bad business. Not only because when you are fearful, you're not in a good mood. We control the narrative. Right? They blame us for controlling the news, right? The Jews control the news. We control the media. Spiritually speaking, we control the narrative. What are we thinking? What are we speaking? So are there problems? Of course there are problems. We have uh, difficult days ahead. We know that the IDF is only just beginning to do what it needs to do to bring protection. We know that we have uh, difficult work ahead now that we see uh, the horrible state of anti-Semitism that there is around the world, including in the West. We used to think that anti-Semitism was, uh, you know, was yeah, it was, it was all but gone. In the fringe, there's some fringe anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, it was wishful thinking. It's, it's very scary. Anti-Semitism is here. And um, it, it's, it's actually, we, we need to do a lot of reckoning. You know, all the Holocaust education we spoke about, the Jewish community has poured billions of dollars in building museums for the Holocaust and Holocaust education. And here we kind of see that all bursting in a bubble. It's for another discussion. There's a lot of scary things happening. Um, this is a historic moment. A lot of things are going to change. I think the, 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 the reality is changing. The narrative is changing. But we as Jews, where do we stand? What has to be done will be another class. But before what has to be done, we have to know what to be thinking and what to be speaking. And what we have to be thinking and speaking is one of positivity, of confidence, and joy. And that is very serious, it's very real, and it's very consequential. Just yesterday, I saw a video, crazy video, early morning in Israel, a group of Chabad Shluchim from Canada went in solidarity to support the Chabad, the, all the Chabad centers in Israel who are you know, just working their heads off trying to serve the Jewish people, the soldiers. So Chabad Shliach from Montreal is there on the border with Gaza. And as we know, two nights ago, there was a raid, a very serious military raid into Gaza where it wasn't the official invasion, but the IDF did a preliminary operation to prepare the ground for an invasion. And the Chabad Shluchim are literally there on the border where the, and they are there as the mission is coming back. They were there a whole night. The sun is rising. And one of the, and it was, a, it was a very elite group of soldiers and commanders who went in. It wasn't the regular troops. And one of the soldiers there, the, the Chabad rabbi, the Chabad shlich is speaking to him. 
And he asked me, you know, what just happened? He speaks about the mission. He says, I don't know what I could say, but he said it was a very successful mission. The rabbi asked him, was it successful? He says, it was very successful. If it wasn't successful, I wouldn't be here speaking to you. Um, it was a very successful mission. And the rabbi says, you know, everybody who I know at home in Canada, all the Jews in, in, the, in America, there's a lot of fear. And the soldier right away reacts. He says, don't be scared. Don't be scared. Don't worry. We here, the soldiers, we're doing great. We don't need American Jews to be scared. We are happy here. We are ready to take care. We're ready to bring protection to the Jewish people. We're not scared. You shouldn't be scared. And it was amazing hearing that from a soldier. He was a commander of a tank. He's a. He's like, don't don't be scared. You know, a soldier knows this. You're not helping the cause. This is this is not what we need here. Um, and he says, you should be happy, keep on supporting us, and when we know that you are supporting us with your joy, with your optimism, that helps us as soldiers, and uh, especially for the difficult days ahead. So dear friends, that is the message from this week. Don't be scared, Abraham. A Jew shouldn't be scared. Don't be negative. Don't be worried. Don't be focused on the problems. That's not the Jewish way. We bring positive outcomes by thinking positive and speaking positive. And dear friends, with that... We conclude this week's Torah Deep Dive. I want to thank you so much for joining us. I want to wish you all a good Shabbos. We should have good news from our Holy Land. And we'll see you all next week, God willing. I understand do not fear, but I grew up with the idea, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. In order to prepare for the worst, we need to... Be pragmatic. Think. What? You're saying you have to be pragmatic also. Yes, because we cannot say, hey, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, everything will be go great yeah i mean in life so so i'll tell you I'll put, I'll put it this way i think the problem with fear is that we are obsessed with things that may or may not happen in the future that we don't have control over right that's the definition of fear then there are the things that we know we could be doing right now to prepare that we are in the best position of what may or may not be happening so one is a question of what do we need to do right now? What do we need to, you know, for example, the, the letter was being written to a Jew who was very ill. So no one's saying don't go to a hospital. Just think good, you won't, yeah, you know, think good, no problems. No, if you need to go to a doctor, go to a doctor. And you listen to the doctor, but imagine somebody who went to the doctor, the doctor prescribed the medicine, but they're still obsessed with fear. So you did what you had to do. So why are you scared now? I'm still scared because I'm sick. So it's about what do you need to do? You do what you got to do. For sure, do what you got to do. And it doesn't mean ignore the problem. It means deal with the problem. But fear is not dealing with the problem. Fear is this weird way of obsessing in an uncontrollable manner about things, uh, uh, obsessing with the problem in a way that you can't even control. So what you could control, do. And if it's a medical problem, you go to a doctor. If it's, for example, a military problem like Israel's facing, you go to military professionals. The politicians shouldn't be deciding what's happening in Israel. The people, the, 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 the generals should be deciding what needs to be done right now for the future security of the Jewish people. So you do what you got to do, no problem. But then the fear, which is an obsession, it's an emotional obsession which we know will not change reality, that's unhealthy. So this is not saying ignore the problem. It means do what you got to do and don't let the fear debilitate you. Don't let the fear paralyze you. And don't let the fear be an obsession. So using plain language, you are suggesting serenity prayer, basically. Grant me serenity to to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, that's that that's a that's a good start. But in, but it also means you know when we are worried about something, when we have anxiety about something, it's not that easy to tell the person, oh, just just forget about it. What do you mean forget about it? Uh, this is this is on my heart. This is on my head. So this is what the Tzemach writes. We have to try to distract ourselves by other activities, learn Torah, do think about things that could distract your mind. But it's almost it, it almost feels like inappropriate to be joyful in times like this. That's true. That's true. Um, that's true. So joyful doesn't mean that you're throwing a party to celebrate what happened. But joy means that as a Jew internally, in our home, in our family. The mode, the energy in our home is not one of, of giving up. It is one of, of, of firm. We're, pro, we're Jewish pride. We're going on further. 
We're going on even higher. We're not going to be dragged down right now. We didn't lose our spine. We didn't lose our strength. We didn't lose our our identity. You know, that's... Thank you so much. I think it's a very great class and very timely. Absolutely. So, Thank you, Pauline.